Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co-host and star of this show, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber, episode 233 on the network. Uh, before we get going with, with Jim, we've got a great episode in store for you today, right on par with this chasing velocity, chasing power, uh, global pandemic that's going on with youth all the way up to big leagues. We're going to find out some flaws, and, and through Jim's triple spin theory, we're going to try to fix them. Identify and fix, hopefully. But to our 20,000, 21,000 faithful subscribers in 72 different countries, our loyal listeners, keep uh, keep supporting us. And that's simple. Listen, download, like, subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, we can keep bringing you this great content every week. We are closing in on our Spotify numbers, which is an additional platform that we subscribe to. And our numbers look like they're going to double to 40,000. Um, we were hoping by yesterday uh, to get the numbers. We're crossing our fingers by today, but we'll be patient. I got an inside inside track on it, and I think we're about to double, which means great things are happening for our network. Uh, all we're trying to do here is build a better baseball IQ out there, and uh, no one does it better than our host today, Jim Rooney. Jim, welcome back to your show. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. And I know you're doing this remote. We won't tell people where you are because we don't want them bothering you on vacation here, but on vacation, you're waking up bright and early with the birds chirping. I'm sure the coffee's brewing and uh, getting ready to talk a little baseball here on Toe the Rubber. Yes, sir. And pretty nice, relaxed atmosphere. So hoping for a good show today. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. So um, we chatted earlier uh, in the week. We go, we go back and forth during the week about topics and what's, what's hot in baseball. But before we get to your topic, um, you, you had a, a, an interesting story, uh, with the Today Show, uh, I think it was your mother-in-law watching the Today Show with this wonderful triple play that that happened. Uh, share share that little anecdote if you don't mind. Well, I was this morning. I was prepping for the show and then uh, looked up and uh, my mother-in-law had the TV on and they spoke about the Braves triple play. They showed the video, the whole thing, and they came back to the hosts of the show. And they both looked at each other. They were going back and forth on what a wonderful play that was. And the third host says, well, I think if we replay that, we'll see some base running errors. So I guess the uh, quality of the game has gone down so far that even the host of the Today Show could see it. Yeah, we hit the bottom of the barrel. We we, um, we had some young men in town two weeks ago. We got a chance to play in a, a college-level tournament. So it's kids that are being going to be in college in about two weeks. And I entered our young team. You met my son Tanner. He's he's a seventh grader. My older son David's an eighth grader. We had two seventh graders, four eighth graders, um, three ninth graders, and then we had a couple of tenth graders that well that were pretty good domestically. And then we brought three over from New Zealand that we work with on their scholarships. And uh, we took them to the Myrtle Beach Myrtle Beach Pelicans, which is the Cubs affiliate. And I think I texted you that day. And we had the Mudcats, which was the Brewers affiliate. And I'm glad that they kind of, they picked out some things, but they were there enjoying the atmosphere. It's so distracting at those games that sometimes you, you don't watch the baseball. But um, I had all all of them. There was nine of them there with me. Cringe on one play. There was runners on first and second with two outs, uh, full count. And on the first occasion, third base coach didn't remind anybody, give him the little you know wheels with the fingers or you know make sure he goes to the plate. Guys should be moving in that uh, in that regard. The runner on first base was about. 
I would say about a foot and a half away from overrunning the guy in second. The guy in first base took off. Guy in second did not. Didn't even do a secondary lead. Just stood there. But the, fortunately, the batter fouled it off. So you get another opportunity to do it. On the second chance, nobody ran. Nobody went three, two, two outs. And on the third one, the same thing happened as the first uh, the first encounter with the guy in first base took off and the guy in second just kind of stood there. He did do a secondary lead at that time. Um, but uh, the batter ended up striking out, um, which is part of what we're talking about with our show today, that that chasing exit velocity and the, the barrel dump and whatnot. But the base running, it just I told Will George, one of our other hosts, I said, God bless you, buddy, for having to watch that every day because I haven't been to a minor league game in about a year and a half. And uh, it was awful. It was tough to watch. Yes, what's interesting about that is a lot of what we're seeing, it's not even just the players. It's it's also the coaches. It reminds me of a story. I worked three years of winter ball with Nick Leba, uh, former manager of the Phillies, third base coach for the Toronto Blue Jays. And he told me a story when he first started coaching first base, I believe for the Cardinals, Whitey Herzog said to him, now remember, every time I gets the first, guy gets the first base, you remind him how many outs there are, how many runners are on base, and who's up. And Nick looked at him and said, excuse me, this is the major leagues. And Whitey said, I know, but this is what you need to do. Uh, I think sometimes you see that first base coach with his stopwatch and all the other things that are going on and all the high fives and different things. And sometimes we forget just the basic fundamentals of playing the baseball game. And it goes not only from the big leaguers all the way down to the minor leaguers, all the way down to amateur baseball, on the field or in the coaching boxes. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, Those are things that are taken for granted now as we've overcomplicated uh, this sport to the point where it's sometimes unwatchable. But um, today we're going to we're gonna try to help out some, I guess we're, we're talking grassroots again all the way up to the big leaguers because it is going on everywhere. But we were going to talk a little bit about the chasing velocity, the flaws that happen um, within the body, and maybe even within the mind, I'm sure, as, as we're, I guess, we're going through that particular procedure. And the same thing with chasing exit velocity with the, with the hitters, this power, this desire for power. Um, where, where do you want to start with that? You want to start with the pitching? Uh, yeah, the first topic is concerning the pitching and others that since, you know, triple spin can be related to hitting as well as throwing a baseball because of the rotational forces. But some of the things I see, like I can remember back to when I first started coaching in college in 1987. And as I've stated before, I did a lot of what I called reverse mapping work back from release point. Uh, then when I got back into pro ball, into affiliated ball, more and more the players that were I was seeing that were coming into the organization, their foundations were off, their instabilities were, you know, outstanding. And to try to work back from velocity, I mean, within a bullpen session, we were lucky if we had five or six quality executed pitches in order to grow from. Um, nowadays, when I started up the business and working with uh, young ball players, there's a couple of things that you see and they come all the way back to when they first started playing the game. Uh, I believe we spoke uh, one episode about when we first start learning how to play baseball, we're given the same size ball that they give to major leaguers. And we're put into a very competitive, competitive environment, performance related environment at an early age. I and mean, I have some clients that I asked them, when did they start playing organized baseball? And believe it or not, they tell me when they were four years old, uh, they played T-ball. 
And anybody who plays a game, especially when you're young, uh, the emotion of the competition can get a little overwhelming and all they want to do is perform or do well or have their mom and dad say good game or any of the other uh, compliments they could receive as a reinforcement. But they're asked to take that five-ounce ball and apply force to it, whether they want to hit it or throw it. And this, because of that, it it, uh, it creates some bad habits of trying to use your whole body to produce the force instead of really trusting and relying on your hands. The first one I see nonstop is, uh, and I did a post about this earlier in the week, when it comes to arm actions. And one of the one of the things to be understood about arm actions is hopefully we catch them when the ball player or the child is young enough. Because when you're trying to correct an arm action, let's say of a college pitcher, or maybe a guy after college entering into professional baseball, that not only that muscle memory, but that training mechanism of the muscular endurance and the muscular power and all the things that has been so inbred in them. They've, they've probably thrown a ball 10,000, 20,000 times before they met you. And they've thrown it this way. And even though it's incorrect and it would have to change in order for their performance to improve and their health to improve long-term, it needs to be a gradual process. So that's why when I look at the younger guys that sometimes I deal with, one, it isn't so ingrained in them. So it becomes an easier process if you catch it when, you, you know, uh, soon enough when they're young enough. I mean, you can almost look at it like in the medical community. <clears throat> you know, you catch a cold, you go to the doctor, taken care of. You let it go, you let it go. It gets worse, worse, and worse. And then it becomes tougher to try to deal with. The first thing I see all the time is just the placement of the elbow. Um, our shoulders work into external internal rotation by the elbow being at shoulder height. Anybody can stand there, put their elbow at shoulder height and rotate back and forth and say that it's probably, you know, it's somewhat comfortable um, and they're successful at it. The second we lower the elbow, we can't drop into external rotation. The second we higher the elbow above the shoulder, we can't drop into external rotation. And then if the elbow is forward to shoulder um, in the throwing mechanism, we can't go, drop into external rotation. It'll, if we do, it'll bring us totally online. Some of the things that it's caused by this is, for example, in the high elbow, I'm coming into more and more uh, players, whether it's driven by late separation of the hand and then everything's trying to catch up. Uh, but for the high elbow, I relate it very much to the hip mobility. A lot of young players can't get through that front hip their front hip doesn't hinge, it doesn't fold properly. And even if they get through, it's with a forced effort, what I call a pole vault. And if you attach that hand, that throwing hand, that throwing elbow, it seems to be attached to that front hip. And the second we go into pole vault, now the hip has been elevated in order to get through the front side. And that elbow raises above the shoulder. Excuse me. <laughs> um, so sometimes you're looking at that arm action and people say, oh, we have to address that. And we start doing things to try to lower that elbow. Whereas if we just looked at how the hip worked and we helped them get through the hip instead of pole vaulting over it, it self-corrects itself, especially if the guy is a, a pretty decent athlete. 
Um, you also see that in the forward elbow. I got a question about pole vaulting. Sure. I know we're, we're not a visual show, but um, is that when the, the front leg's bent and they're extending the front leg to kind of force their upper body over the front leg? Explain explain that for Correct. That's, that's okay. the extreme uh, version of pole vault. You know, guy sticks, maybe he sticks the leg, the land leg into the ground straight already and then just pole vaults as a pole vault will do over that front side. Sometimes it's the, the hyperextension of the leg. They, they, let's say they land at the knee bent at about 45 degrees, and the next thing you know, there's a violent hyperextension of that knee. It straightens out in order to get through the front side. A lot of, new, um, a lot of the new biomechanics and a lot of things taught nowadays is they don't, actually, they don't even mind the, the extension of that front knee because they feel it's the, the last um, – the last area in which you can add force out front to increase velocity. The problem with young kids though, is that the stability of their front side is not up to par. So they're really not going to control that force and it's really not going to increase velocity. In fact, it's probably going to be more of a negative influence, but that pole vault nowadays, I look at it, it, it could, it's, it's that kind of little pause when you don't go through that front hip, and now you need added force or added drive from the lower half to get past that front hip. So I've kind of lumped them all into the category of pole vaulters. And when that, like I said, when that happens, there's times that you then see the corresponding elbow raising above the shoulder. Um, the other elbow position is the forward elbow. And I call it a catapult. It, it results in a pushing action and not an external internal rotation accent, uh, action. And that catapult puts a tremendous amount of stress on the elbow. Uh, so it's something that, you know, needs to be dressed. Uh, I've had the, the misfortune of meeting a couple of young ball players and, and they've come in to me for an evaluation. Um, they're playing travel ball. They're an outstanding third baseman or outfielder or, or middle infielder. And they want to, pitch more for their travel team and sure enough they're good athletes they have great arms and they start being used more and more as pitchers they throw with that catapult action sometimes that catapult action can be seen in the in the in the small exchanges of the middle infielder which isn't that much of a negative but when you take that catapult action on the mound and a young guy's 13 14 years old the next thing you know the travel ball coach is is putting 100 pitches, 90 pitches of workload on him every week. And a couple of them have already fallen to Tommy John, and they met me. They were evaled, and then the dad gave me a call up and said, uh, uh, we're not going to be able to see you. We, we have to go have surgery. And then luckily in one instance, the individual, once he was freed to throw by his therapist and his doctor, I'm overseeing his throwing program just to correct those issues so he understands that um, moving forward, you know, he might have super tendon for five years, but you're 14 years old. That takes you to 19 years old. So as a senior or a freshman in college, we don't have to go through this again. So we're going to work on correcting that issue. A lot of this, um, especially the pole vault action, a lot of it also can be related back to late separation of the hands. Late separation brings 
brings about a, a, a number of problems. One, you'll see that extreme late separation means that now the hand, the throwing hand, throwing arm is going to just be playing catch up throughout the whole delivery. And in order to play catch up, it knows that it has to quicken. So it kind of shortens the action instead of, let's say, a, a medium arc or even a guy with a long arc out back. And it frees the hand and he's nice and loose. Now all of a sudden it comes in close. And the closer that hand comes into the head, the more the elbow starts to go forward. So a lot of times, like you said, the arm action is a learned behavior. It's a learned skill based upon what occurred before the arm got into throwing position. And a lot of that is related with late separation of the hands. Um, when should the hand separate? Well, the pitcher. The main goal is that we don't want to be going two directions at the same time. We don't want our hips to be leaving the rubber and our hand going back into throwing action, into throwing position. Sometimes it, what works with young guys is knee up, ball out, knee up, ball out. And they just get into a rhythm when we're playing, when we're doing throwing drills, throw, doing your throwing program. Knee up, ball out. Knee, knee up, ball out, front foot hits, arms in throwing position. Those are some basic things. But what I like to do is take it a step further and just come up with the verbiage the terminology that fits that person so they understand. Sometimes it's just we don't want to go two directions at the same time. Sometimes it's we got to get the ball out of the glove before your hips separate from the rubber. Um, each individual, you know, perceives the words that you say and, and, and results in a different thing that they, you know, understand. Um, <laughs> the other thing that, is related to this is you can even see it in pitchers and hitters. The front side direction is basically there for direction. So your front side, your front hip, your front shoulder, your front elbow. In the hitting and throwing mechanic, it's there for direction. Uh, for for example, in hitters, that front side has to get to the ball. Right? Um, but what we do is at a young age both hitters and pitchers in order to try to create more force, hit it farther, hit it harder, throw it farther, throw it faster. They start using that front side to create force. So there's a pulling action with the front side or there's a front shoulder flying open. What I call shoulder hitters, instead of using their hands and trusting their hands, the shoulders go first. Um, what this also causes is that they get too, too quick to the front side in both the throwing mechanism and the hitting mechanic. When you're too quick to the front side, all of a sudden the whole lower half, your lower body, your weight transfer happens early and everything's gone to the front side and the hands haven't even started what they're, what they're supposed to do. Um, with really young players, let's say of little league age, <clears throat> a lot of times this is natural because if they, in their natural athleticism, in all the motor skill foundations and all the different things that they've done while they're, while they're young, if they haven't done enough running or climbing trees or riding a bike or walking up and running up downstairs, we see an, an attachment. We don't see a lot of hip-shoulder separation. So what I say to these young guys is that um, we're not going to let our front shoulder be attached to our front hip. Just because the hip wants to go, the shoulder's got to stay in. And just the simple throwing, hitting, 
playing basketball, doing other things that kids do, that's enough uh, spinal rotation for them. We don't want to address those type of situations by prescribing different exercises, especially resistance exercises, and then put an overemphasis on the hip shoulder separation. Uh, not that I'm a medical doctor or, or an athletic trainer, but a lot of I see nowadays with all these oblique injuries, I think that even as an adult, some of these guys are just um, attempting to create so much rotational force that it leads to overtraining and then leads to the injuries that you see going on in the games. Um, yeah, it was, I was going to mention that, and I'm glad you did, that there's no substitute for playing the game. And as you mentioned, even other games like basketball, you know, running, jumping, climbing, um, there's natural ways to develop the, the very things you're talking about and anything there's no people are looking for that quick fix, I guess. And you're right in saying that we're neither one of us are medical doctors, but there's an alarming amount of strange injuries that are happening. And you don't have to be a, a brain surgeon to figure out that the amount of force outside of the actual sport, these guys are putting on their bodies. is just abnormal. And it is, I, I'll put it on the books. It is leading to these injuries. No question about it. In my mind. Yes, that, that those are great points. Yeah, well, it, it it brings me back to a story from my past. So, while I was working as the pitching coordinator for the Milwaukee Brewers, the Double A manager in the Brewers organization was Don Money. Don Money got to the big leagues, I believe, at 18, 19 years old with the Phillies. He still holds the National League record. I, I believe it still stands for errorless games by a second baseman in a row. He then went to the Milwaukee Brewers. I can remember him, uh, Don Money, number seven, uh, being a utility player for them and a designated hitter. Uh, very good hitter. Very consistent. So we're sitting in the double-A clubhouse after a game, and we're just talking back and forth, and he's just talking about how some of these athletes are coming to him, you know, big and strong, but they – but they're not strong. They, they look strong, but they're not really strong. They don't have a good foundation. Um, they don't have hands that are strong enough to be successful hitters. So I related back to him. I said, Don, you grew up on a farm in Delaware. You've been doing manual labor your whole life. When you guys uh, were done with your season, what'd you do? He goes, I went back and worked on my dad's farm, you know, manual labor the whole off season. I said, yes, exactly. The funny thing about that is we think we're an ever-evolving society. And yet, in your day, the baseball season would be over. You'd go back and do manual labor and get paid for it. I said, now you go to any any gym, any workout area, uh, any establishment that uh, considers themselves you know, high-end personal training or group training, and you'll see them turning over tires, shaking ropes up and down because these trainers are now attempting to mimic the movements of manual labor. So instead of the traditional weightlifting exercises that you see, a lot of the training now has turned into their attempts to mimic manual labor. And the reason I bring this up is because now the players are going home in the off season and I do understand they're making, you know, more money, so it doesn't necessarily affect their pocketbooks. 
but they're paying somebody else to do the manual labor, meaning they're going to a gym, paying a coach or a trainer, and the coach or a trainer is trying to put them on a program that's similar to what, like you going home in the off season and working on a farm. So how, how have we um, progressed <laughs> in our training mechanisms? That's ironic. I'd never thought about that. You're right. And they're, they're paying, you know, nothing that, that this is going to make or break a hitter, but they're making money. And all of a sudden they're paying somebody else to mow their lawn, you know, cut their trees, uh, you know, whatever they do in their, you know, whatever they're doing on their farm. Um, <laughs> and they, uh, then they go to a gym and pay more money for somebody to try to duplicate. That's ironic. Exactly. It's a good way to think about exactly. it. Exactly. And, um, so one of the things that happens with this, um, hip shoulder separation is I come across a lot of athletes that are somewhat limited in external rotation or the front hip. So the front throwing hip or the front hitting hip. And as a result, when they get too quick to the front, they initiate external rotation or the opening of that hip during their stride. And when their foot's a little bit too far above the ground. And when you do this, your natural weight shift is going to go very quickly to your front side. And the second that's done, all the power that can be applied to the baseball through the hips is lost because the whole lower half is now on the front side. And the hitter or the pitcher or the thrower turns into an upper body arm thrower or an upper body arm hitter. And um, when you look at old films of, let's say, uh, Mickey Mantle or, and Hank Aaron and Willie Mays, You'll see, um, if you want to call it a hip glide, but you'll see how important. I mean, when you consider the fact that Mano was about 5'10", 205 pounds, you'll see those hips not only violently rotating at the proper time, but almost gliding forward so the entire body was hitting the baseball. And I guess that's one of the reasons he's hit some of the longest home runs and you know, uh, tape measure shots in the history of baseball. Here's, here's my question. How on earth did he learn that without a hitting coach when he was 10 years old? Well, it's like on a majority. That's sarcasm, by the way. No, but it's like on a majority of my posts. One of the, one of the hashtags is play to learn. And um, this, this brings us back to um, young players. Okay. All of a sudden, at four or five years old, they're playing t-ball. They're in a structured environment. And a coach is telling them what to do. Well, when you're that age and an adult's telling you what to do, you start attempting to do exactly what they say. So you're now thinking more about what you're supposed to do instead of feeling and being part of the process of what you do naturally. Uh, I think where we really miss the boat in young ballplayers is that they don't play enough in an unstructured environment and learn how their own individual mind and body functions. Um, we, we, we attempt to standardize things. We, we attempt to group things. I mean, we do that in all other facets of our society, whether it be in our education system and, and different ways. Um, you know, just to off track here, I, I, listened to a podcast with the psychologist Jordan Peterson. 
And he spoke of that one of the real travesties of our education system is that we're, we're asking young boys to sit still in a classroom, totally entertained, unentertained and bored out of their mind. Well, this is not the way boys are, are made. They're, it's not the way they're put together. They have to be active. They have to be involved. They have to be moving. They have to be uh, taking in their environment. It's, the, it's just the way that, um, you know, humanity still is, is as far as you go back and, and, you know, what makes us who we are. So when I, I take what he's saying and I put it in a baseball environment and you take a five or six-year-old and you then put him in a structured environment. I mean, we've all seen the little T-ball practice. Everybody gets in a line. Hey, behave. Hey, you got to pay attention. Hey, why are you talking over there? How are you going to learn if you're not watching? Okay, come up here. All right, you do this. You put the bat here. You put your arms here. You do this. You swing like this way. And this is the stage where they should just be doing it their way. And then let them understand and how they feel. And then later on, as they mature and they age, a person should come around and fine tune the way they do it. But, you know, one, um, that's not standardized enough for us because how are we going to do group instructions and make more money per hour doing a group instruction compared to an individual instruction? So the individual parent, you know, will look and say, well, I'm, I'm, instead of paying $50 an hour or $60 an hour, whatever it is, I now can pay $10 and you can go in a group of 10 kids and do hitting lessons. That's fine as long as the person doing the group training does his best to individualize it for each person because each person moves differently. Each person's body is different. Each person's uh, more skill development is different. Um, you know, I think you just hit on the business model that's prevalent now too with, with that. And I even taken a step further because you, you talk about it quite a bit. Uh, I hope our audience understand just how deep you dive into not just the young, as you did as a professional coach, but how deep you're diving into these young kids. There's also the learning and socialization strategies that these kids have too that need to be taken into account when you're, when you're putting them in a group setting. And I, I don't think you, there, there's only one of you out there. Um, I don't think others have the background, the wherewithal, or even the desire to dive as deep as you do to understand how these kids socialize, how they learn. Um, Cause even though they're saving 40 bucks an hour, um, boy, the, the, uh, the damage that could be done by teaching a kid a wrong way, either the love of the sport or learning at the learning at the wrong way is, I mean, it's just frightening. Yes. Um, group dynamics, um, there, there are positives about group dynamics that is very ben beneficial in the child's development. But in my opinion, unless that child has taken the leap of faith in themselves because they're having fun playing baseball, they play with their buddies, they play wiffle ball, they play stickball, whatever they play. And they've learned to play the game of baseball. They've learned how to function and perform by playing the game instead of being instructed on how to play the game at a young age. They, 
they find their little niche, they find their little self-confidence. Um, I mean, the, the, the title of this podcast, Toe the Rubber, is a, is a breakdown of when I, even in pro ball, I'd say, toe the rubber and express yourself. You be you. You got to do your thing. And until that is really part of what's going on, the group dynamic for some can be a negative environment. You know, I mean, I know this is kind of, um, you know, an old saying, but we've all gone to the Little League game and um, you see a bunch of nine-year-olds and every inning, everybody's playing the same position. Nobody's rotating yeah. around. Nobody's learning how to do other things and acquire other motor skills, be placed in other mental situations that they can grow from. So take that that team of nine, and when you in a small community especially, then you go to group lesson, and five or six of the guys that were on the team or on the other team are all on a group lesson. And, you know, we'll take uh, – of the group of ten, we'll take uh, five of those are the shortstops on the team. And – they're pretty good ball players and they have good motor skills and they're a leader of their teams and the whole thing. And, and, uh, two of them are the, uh, left fielder or the catcher. And the other two were one of them are the, the right fielder. Well, we all, we know all the old uh, stereotype of the right fielder in little league, you know, we put them out there and we hope they don't hit the ball there. Well, now he's placed in this group dynamic in this group hitting lesson. Do you think he's ever going to grow out of the mentality of that he's the right fielder? No. And this is where then no self-confidence is, is grown. No. And then how is he going to learn? He's not going to learn. Um, whereas that if the instructor understands this whole concept and, uh, you know, maybe has group lessons of, I know they break it down to age, but if they've broken down to ability, then people of similar abilities and similar backgrounds as far as, you know, what positions they play on the field and different things like, like that, then that group would benefit from that. And then the group that maybe is an introductory group, that group would benefit more from that. Um, a lot of times when you see a little league game or, or you see some group instruction or group lessons, uh, you know, or baseball summer camps that everybody does, uh, you end up that there are some, you know, attitude problems and some difficulties that arise. I would probably say that a lot of those difficulties were because um, somebody who's maybe lacking a little bit of self-confidence and really hasn't learned to play the game and is kind of being force-fed into the situation is now in a group dynamic, dynamic that they feel... Uh, whether they don't belong or they don't want to be there. And when all of those things happen, you know, not a lot of positive things come out of it. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's kind of the mental side of it, but we do have to understand that it gets back to that conversation we had that the 10 year old Roger Clements and the 18 year old Roger Clements and the 30 year old Roger Clements and the 42 year old Roger Clements, they all, played differently, trained differently, and adjusted throughout the whole time. So 
we take these young kids and we put them in an environment where we expect them to be big leaguers when they haven't even been nine-year-olds yet. It's just a recipe for disaster. I mean, someone can look at videotape of Roger Clements when he was with the Boston Red Sox and then look at videotape of when Roger Clements was an Astro or, or New York Yankee, and his arm action is completely different. And there's a reason why he figured it out of how he had to make adjustments. Um, so which Roger Clements are you picking to teach your 10-year-old to be like? You know, it's kind of a crapshoot. Yeah. Um, well, I want to get back to that group dynamic because you, you hit on a great point with talking about the right fielder, the kid that's um, thrown into the group with the short stops and, and whatnot and, you know, lack of self-confidence, almost being typecast uh, emotionally to, to say this is my lot in life. I want to warn parents, it works on the other side too. So um, if your son is always the shortstop, or like in, in my situation, we were conscious of this. My, so you met my son Tanner. He'll he gets brought on the teams and he'll catch four games in eighteen hours, and it's crazy. And and everybody wants their kid to be the catcher and, and whatnot. And I'm on the other side of it, so I actually moved him up to our sixteen U team, where he's no longer the catcher. So he gets both of those. So he learns how to be the second baseman. He learned. And he leads off with the other. He learns how to bat seventh in the lineup, fifth in the lineup. He learns how to play second base, left field, uh, third base, the other spots. Because I was concerned on the other end that he was being so, he was lumped in so much as the catcher that he was losing or going to lose the other parts of the game. He was lumped in so much as the leadoff guy. He's 14, 13, 14 years old. He's not anything yet. Um, so I, I, I think parents need to pay attention to both sides of that. Don't think your kid's a shortstop just because he's, you know, He's got the pituitary issue right now at the age of 10, and he's got the best motor skills. you got to let him learn the other parts of the game, the other parts of the lineup. So I think those are great points, Jim. Right. I mean, just think about that catching situation. For a long time now, there's been many, many ballplayers that their offensive skills were so great that as part of their development, coaches along the way, especially in professional baseball and minor leagues, they've thought of taking a person off the catching position because over time, the catching position, the wear and tear is going to diminish their offensive skills. So take a young player and all he's been doing is catching. Well, are we going to start the clock of diminishing offensive skills and and wear and tear on that body at, at nine, 10, 11, 12 years old. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, I mean, that's why, that's why you see a lot of catchers. I mean, dating back to Yogi Berra to the, to then, uh, Joe Maurer eventually moved the first, they, 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 they moved them out of the catching position because they're so valuable as an offensive player. So I don't really think it's a, it's a good point for, uh, uh, coaches or parents to at a young age for all of a sudden somebody is um, stereotyped and, and grouped into one position uh, or two positions. Think about guys that actually caught in the bigs, JT Romuto, Jorge Posada. Those guys weren't catchers when they came in into the league. Correct. They were position players and they got converted. So it's, you know, everybody develops in their own time. I guess that's our message develops in their own time. And if we don't create an ecosystem around these kids properly, then we're, putting them in a Coke bottle and they're going to take the shape of that bottle eventually. Correct. Correct. It's, it's like I had uh, the other day a, a nine-year uh, baseball head coach tell me that he he can he can project this player to be a, a, a quality third baseman. And I said to him, he's nine years old. 
I yeah. mean, I used to do that for a living. You know, I was I was part of the process when, you know, you make decisions on who makes the four or five or six or two million or whatever in the draft and different things like that. And I <laughs> I'd be crazy to think if I could figure out what a nine year old's gonna be. But this is what we do. This is the world we live in right now. Um Plus delusional. It's they're delusional. Yes. That that environment. Yes. Um so getting back, Dave, to the to the hip rotation and upper body rotation, there's a couple of things that you see. And this, this definitely goes into the realm of, uh, you know, throw harder and hit it harder and the whole thing. And you see a lot of kids when they first come to you with a complete over rotation of their upper body, or if we want to call it the reach back syndrome, whether it's the hitter wrapping that bat behind their head or reaching back or, or the pitcher reaching back. And next thing you know, uh, I'll use a technical term, but the horizontal abduction is deep into negative. So you see that hand reaching way back, and then the, the catcher, the hitter, the umpire can see that hand way behind his butt, way reaching back. Um, and what happens with this over-rotation, um, especially for hitters to start, is there's no way their front side can get to the ball because if their front side – did what it was supposed to do, the point of contact in their swing would be about two feet behind the ball. So that front side flies out, and I call it a whirly bird. And um, as we you know, as we, when you're in high school physics, we, we remember the term for every action, there's a opposite and equal reaction. So if I over-rotate back, I'm going to over rotate through we start getting that that arm bar where the straight arm goes straight way before contact the front side starts pulling the bat through instead of smacking it down through the baseball and we get the chicken wing or that bent arm that pulls the front bat all the way and a lot of those are, are shoulder swingers um instead of that front side i use the terminology step back smack so step is the rhythm of our front foot stepping back is the top hand taking the bat back so it stays at the hitting position and smack is the front side going down and through the baseball. But with the young kids, and because they've learned it and it's never really been corrected, you, you can see this in a lot of high school ball players also, um, or even college guys that want to emulate Aaron Judge. But the thing that happens in all of that is the over-rotation of the upper body, if you want to say the flying out of the front side, the, the, the pulling of the front side off the ball, the pulling of the front side off the drive line when you're throwing the ball, this also causes the, the hips to rotate early. And in a hitter, you'll see it if you relate to a golf swing. In a golf swing, your front arm is supposed to stay relatively straight. That's a recipe disaster in a, in a baseball swing. The arm straightens at the point of contact. Uh, if it straightens too early, you have a golf swing. But the thing about what people don't relate, and especially when they see this new age of hitting that they see on the major leagues with an Aaron Judge and other you know, big, strong guys, is a golf club is way lighter than a baseball bat, obviously especially now with graphite, graphite shafts, even the, 
we can duffer can have some lag in that swing and that club head's going to whip through because of the flexibility of that shaft. So our shoulders and hips are supposed to lead the club. So then the club follows, but there's a whip action. Now, the last time I looked, I haven't run into too many little league age kids that can whip an aluminum pad <laughs> to where it flexes and gets through the zone. Because of that, the back hip has to follow when it goes into internal rotation to explode on the ball, it has to follow the backhand or else their hands are going to be continually late. And these are things that if all of a sudden you start teaching a young hitter in this example, how to do things like a major leaguer, once again, a recipe for disaster, they're not physically strong enough to do those things. Um, they don't have the eye-hand coordination. They don't have the, the foundation of motor skills. These are all, they're in the process of learning all that, of acquiring all that. Um, secondly, maybe a guy that has immense strength. I haven't really, I've seen, you know, high-speed photography of, of baseball bats and the bend and the whip and the wooden bat on a big league level, but I have not seen anybody bend or whip a, an aluminum bat or the bats that are used nowadays. Um, and that's... So these guys, on, these guys on the internet that are claiming they, you know, they're trying to teach you to hit like, like you're saying, like Aaron Judge or, I mean, even the guys that, that I agree with how they're, they're swinging the bat, it's, they're charlatans, basically. They're, they're preying on families' desire, that 1% chance that their kid's going to put on a professional uniform, forget about a big league uniform, um, to get them, the, it, it, it's more of a ruse to bring in revenue. Let's just say it's 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 impossible for them to emulate the big leaguers, is what you're saying. Yeah, you know what? I'm everybody does what they do. Yeah, and I, I can't necessarily comment on it. All I know is that when you're dealing with preteens and then even teenagers, before a child is physically mature. It's impossible to ask them to do things that an adult does. I mean, you know, people kid around and it was infamous with Don Money because from his shoulders to his hands, he was so strong. It was unbelievable. And uh, I've come into contact with many guys that played during that era, worked with Sparky Lyle. Insane. You watch Sparky Lyle on TV, didn't look like a big guy. You meet him from his shoulders to his hands, unbelievably strong. Um, and now you're asking, you know, uh, even a 15-year-old kid with a weak handshake, <laughs> try to emulate those guys. It just, it just doesn't work. It just, it's all it's going to do is lead to bad habits because the body is a survival mechanism. It's going to attempt for ways to be successful. And then you see a lot of these shoulder swingers, you know, or these guys that the, the front hips attached to the front shoulder and everything flies and then the back hips too early and the hands are dragging and they wonder why they're lacking in bat, in the bat speed and, and have no, uh, you know, no solid hard contact. Um, how, sh how should the, and if I'm wrong in saying this, correct me, as a hitter, and I'm trying to, I'm taking kind of off the verbiage of pitching that you're talking should the hitter try to stay as stay parallel to the plate as long as possible? Is that um, a, a visual we can give the audience? 
for young ball players, yes, yes. If, if we're going to use a in generalized terms, I would put it that way. Correct. Because um, remember, uh, you you can go to any extremely knowledgeable um, fitness trainer, athletic trainer, uh, strength coach, and they're not really going to prescribe as part of the uh, exercise prescription working on resistance training in the rotational forces. Okay, they're they're because the the young players' hips, spine, all those things haven't fully formed yet. Growth plates, all these other things that you get into. Um, they do enough rotation, upper body rotation, hip shoulder separation, and just the normal things that they do playing the game of baseball, basketball, any other sports that they do. And that's, you know, fine enough. Um, if we think back to the, the two foundations in triple spin, the hips down through the feet through the ground and the, and the scapula, the shoulder blade, they have to stabilize. If we, if we haven't even been able to stabilize those two foundations in, I'm going to say the linear plane, you know, without rotation, how are they going to stabilize in a dynamic rotation where we're attempting to explode on a baseball or, you know, whether we're throwing it or hitting it. Um, So if you look at it that way and very, very knowledgeable strength coaches are are not going to train a 10 year old kid on that way, uh, then, you know, how are we going to expect them to, to start to focus on hip and shoulder separation in their resistance training? It's just, it's just not feasible. Um, even though, like you said, he, you know, it just doesn't happen in baseball. There's many, many times you'll, you'll go online and you'll see different posts of some personal trainer or strength coach working with a young athlete. Now they, they know their athlete better than I, I don't even know the person, but they're 10 years old and, and they're doing plyometrics. I mean, it, you know, it, it doesn't really make much sense to me. Um, a lot of guys are doing these advanced training techniques, whether it be baseball orientated or, or, or weightlifting and fitness training. And, you know, they haven't even learned how to bend down and pick up a box correctly. How, you know, that their hips haven't hinged correctly. What, what are we doing? It's, I mean, that's definitely problems in the future. It's like, the pitcher that can't hinge the front hip and get through the front hip. We're teaching a guy to squat or deadlift, and yet he can't even stabilize his spine. Now, how's that going to work? But this is what we do. This is what we do because, um, you know, in the, in the Charlotte area alone, uh, there's travel teams all over the place. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. There's training facilities all over the place. Every time you, you turn around, somebody's opening a uh, – you know, a new facility. There was a local facility, absolutely gorgeous. The gentleman did a phenomenal job putting it all together. 8,000 square foot facility, cages, mounds, training area. Um, his wife called me to come in a couple of years ago. Uh, we wonder if we can talk to you and, and, and you could help us out. Went through the whole process and the individual then said, oh, let me figure out what direction I'm going to take and everything. I'll get back to you. Never heard from him. He did his own thing and then he started trying to expand into areas that I could have helped him with, even though he had no prior background in those areas. And, um, you know, the business closed. Uh, 
I ended up with my one started with my one outdoor batting cage, and I had to go uh, me and me and the guy I work with and uh, purchase some uh, used equipment from him. <laughs> it just didn't. But just think of it. I mean, how many times in your community have you seen um, gyms or or strength training facilities or baseball facilities or basketball facilities? All of a sudden, the the shingle goes up, we're open for business, and three or four years later, the shingle comes down, we're out of business. Oh, yeah. They've got the field of dreams mentality that if you build it, they will come. And they forget these kids go to school till three o'clock and, you know, they uh, they have other activities. And and to boot, you know, and, and again, we I don't know the people that open them up, but most of the time, it's, it's much like the training you're talking about by some of these others out there that... They think that if they have all the nice shiny objects, the facility, the mounds, the cages, that that val- the travel team it validates them as a baseball guy, and that's really all they want. They want to belong to the club, so to speak. And unfortunately, kids are kids are paying for that with their you know development and in some cases injury because th- th- these people aren't qualified to do so. Correct. I mean, a lot of the travel. F- uh- organizations in the Charlotte area and and there's some that are very well run they're outstanding but in general think of the process well I really want to open a facility and train players but financially that's difficult to do Um, I'm not really trusting overall in my abilities to do that but if I form a travel team and start expanding, and within the course of three or four years, have eight teams. I have a lot of a lot of money coming in. Then I'll open my facility, and then I'll train the players I want to train. The difficulty in that is you go to the different practices outdoors on a field, and you see how the practices are not organized. There's no individual instruction. People are throwing improperly. Young, young ball players are attempting to create force to chase velocity and, and, and exit velocity or throwing velocity. All these negative things are occurring. And now besides the travel team that the parents are paying for, we are going to pay for them to have individual lessons or even group training from the same uh, group of gentlemen who, whether it's indoors or outdoors, you know, where's the structure? Where's the knowledge? Where's the experience? The pyramid scheme. And then they, uh, I, I know that I know the pattern. Well, if you want to catch for us, come to catching instruction for $50 an hour. If you want to pitch for us, come to pitching instruction. And it's a, it's a constant, I guess it's, it's a, but it's a constant up, upsell, upcharge right. with the kids. You know, Dave, in closing, I'm going to relate a, a story and it, and it concerns my, my wife. Um, my wife was a, four-time All-American in high school in volleyball and basketball in in Chicago, in the city of Chicago. Uh, Her dad used to bring her down to the the public courts and she would be playing guys, you know, very, very talented, much bigger and stronger guys than her. And this is where she learned the game of basketball. Her dad was a college basketball uh, player also. My wife then went on to play college basketball at DePaul. She's the youngest person, young, youngest uh, person ever to be inducted into the city of Chicago uh, Catholic School Hall of Fame for athletics. 
So one summer, she switched uh, volleyball organizations. And if you want to call it AAU or travel volleyball, whatever it is. And, um, and the coach said, well, if you don't come to the uh, volleyball uh, uh, summer camp, you're not going to, you're not going to be on the, in, in the starting rotation of the volleyball team. And he kept pressuring and pressuring her. And, and I would bet you she was a teenager at the time, approximately. And so her mother stepped in and just said, well, if you don't think she's good enough to play for you, then, you know, she wants to go to basketball camp and work on her skills in the summer. And this is what she loves doing. So this is what we'll do. So we'll look for another team. And then the coach realized he's losing his best player. <laughs> which not only is going to help him win games, but, uh, you know, draw in other good players. And he said, whoa, 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 but maybe we can work something out. The trouble nowadays is that it's difficult for parents to do that because of the hold, especially that baseball and travel baseball starts to have on, on the players. And that's the difficulty uh, that parents and the decisions that they have to make to where their young young child should train, should play, should do what he does because he loves what he's doing. And then the thing that happens in the end is that once they get you in the door, your son or daughter loves playing with that team because loves the people on that team. And then you as an adult realize they're not actually getting the proper instruction, but how am I going to tell my 10, 11 or 12 year old that he can't hang out with his buddies anymore because I'm switching teams and he has to go someplace where he learns. It's a very, very difficult decision. And, and it's a difficult place that parents are placed, you know, are, are put in nowadays. And, and uh, personally, I feel for a lot of them because they're just trying to do the best they can, but yet the environment, the external environment that they're left to try to make these decisions in is uh, nobody's really coming around to try to help them. You know, whether it's the, the college recruiting scam to how many, how many uh, companies you now see formed that we're going to help your son or daughter get in to play, you know, division one, division two, division three baseball, you know, and it, you're just feeding on the parents' pocketbook and, and everybody's dreams instead of someone coming along and just helping the child, the player improve as a person and a player. And their talent and their work ethic will take them, you know, where it will take them. But uh, yeah, that's you hit on some four spots. I, I, uh, my wife and I started doing helping kids get to college four years ago when the pandemic hit because those services you're talking about just they jacked up the paranoia because the kids couldn't go out and get seen anymore. So we actually stepped in to handle basketball and baseball. We didn't advertise nothing, word of mouth. And we've helped to date 561 kids get either full basketball scholarships or we know baseball doesn't give full scholarships, maxing out what they can get in baseball, but helping them understand the academic component, the financial aid component. I just got so tired of seeing that. And same with the coaching, this pay to play stuff and this pay to train, you know, you got to train to play. We started doing that as well, just to kind of really pull away from that in our community because I got tired of it. Um, my kids never going to need to play, travel, anything to get to college just because, you know, you and I, you know, we, we are fortunate where we've, we've, we've worked in certain worlds where if our kids are good enough, we can make a phone call to get them seen. Other parents don't have that, that luxury, but um, yeah, we've stepped in in that regard. It, it makes me sick watching that stuff go on. I'm glad you bring it up. You bring it up in a much more professional way than I do. Well, David, I I'll give that. you a, a quick story, a quick example uh, recently. So a young ball player, he's a pitcher and a hitter. 
and uh, his team won the uh, South Carolina State Championship. So he had committed early to a uh, smaller Division One school, very good program. And what happened was the coach left for a bigger and better job. And that put the whole recruiting process um, on hold. That's the way that the school decided to handle it. So I bring this up because what, what happened is now he had been committed to this school since he was a junior, let's say. And um, his team wins the state championship. He's an outstanding uh, left-handed pitcher, very good hitter. He hits a couple of clutch home runs throughout the playoffs and down through the, the championship game. He pitches outstanding. There had been scouts in. He had been cross-checked, and there were some national guys in to see him one night. Uh, he had a decent night, and you know, and then they left. Um, but the structure of the major league draft now is that there's only 20 rounds. So a lot of different um, players are signed as undrafted free agents because they got to fill out my, you know, minor league team rosters. Uh, there also could be a guy that maybe he was projected to, his talent was to be taken in the second or third round, but he threw out an asking price for a signing bonus that was maybe middle first round. And as a result, he, uh, they deem him you know, unsignable for worth and he doesn't get drafted. But someone now has some extra money because they didn't sign uh, their fifth rounder or fourth rounder or maybe their second rounder. They spread the money out and they have some money left over. So they decide to go after some of these, you know, maybe unsignable from worth kind of guys and revisit the situation. Well, in the meantime, this young man leads his team to a state championship. So a couple of teams come in and start offering him uh, half a million dollars and more. So now it's a pretty tough decision for the young guy. But what he learns is that now that Major League Baseball has come by and because of the, the financial uh, parameters of the game of baseball and how it's played and scouting to develop now, teams come around offering that money. Well, you know who comes knocking next? Some major SEC Division One baseball programs. All of a sudden, they want them and they, they have money for them. Yeah. So – Nothing changed. Uh, the, this young man's performance and his skill level and, and, and his work ethic and his, uh, his maturity and his personality, that nothing's changed. But yet, how everybody viewed him changed because the coach left to go take another job. Yep. And he, so, uh, he signed to uh, go to the University of South Carolina and be a Gamecock, and I couldn't be happier for him, but the thing is, is like I said, he didn't change how he trained, how he did everything did not change, but how people viewed him changed. So it, it, it reminds me of the story of, of, of when I was a strength coach and personal trainer many years ago in New York City. And people used to ba uh, base their training uh, programs off of muscular failure. And I'd say, well, there's seven or eight physical characteristics of muscular failure. There's four or five mental characteristics of it. Since it's something that we can't necessarily put our finger on, how do we base our entire training programs around muscular failure? How do we base our decisions on what's best for our children when they're playing the game of baseball 
when the people that are evaluating them or teaching them or coaching them, their perceptions of that person change on a daily basis. And in this case, went from he was an undrafted player going to a small Division One school to now a team offering him uh, heavy, heavy six figures to one of the best baseball programs in the country offering him a scholarship. <laughs> yeah. Difficult. Situation. It tells you there's, a, there's, it, the system is flawed and some of it is politics and politics is perception. As this young man showed, uh, somebody else wanted them. People lack self-reliance. They don't know what they want, but they want what somebody else wants. And unfortunately for, I'm glad for this kid, but it works the other way for kids too sometimes. And it's a, uh, it's a shame. This recruiting is like the Wild West. It needs to get cleaned up in a hurry. Yes, exactly. In a hurry. But uh, well, what up? We have. I've had you on for over an hour while you're on vacation here. That's almost criminal. You're supposed to be relaxing, but I know we're talking baseball. And I know that was going to be a part. Any, anything else you want to leave the audience with today? No, I think we're good. Um, speaking of vacation, that's another thing that uh, parents should understand about their young ball players. Everybody needs a break. Everybody needs to get away relax, recover, recuperate. And then this way, when they get back, they're ready to go. That's it. And kids need to take a break too, right? From, from what they're doing. Yes, sir. Good deal. Well, Jim, I appreciate you coming on on vacation today and, um, toe the rubber has been, uh, it hasn't disappointed ever and people are loving it right now. Hope our audience grabs on to, I always have a legal pad when you, when you're on, because I'm taking notes just like our audience is. And then I'll re-listen to the show to, to add it to what we do with our program. So I know you're making our audience smarter. We have a very sophisticated audience that loves the game. I know you're making me smarter. And we appreciate what you're doing on the show. So toe the rubber. We'll have it out on our podcast network later today. Um, make sure you tune into it. To our faithful audience, 72 countries, keep doing what you're doing. We'll be up over 40,000 subscribers by the end of the day. And that'll mean great things for our network right here. And you keep supporting us, we can keep giving you great content like Jim does on Toe the Rubber. So that's with Jim Rooney, Toe the Rubber, episode 233 uh, in the books. Jim, thanks so much again. Thanks, Dave, and we'll see everybody next week.